And welcome to Here We Stand. I'm your regular host, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. It's November 27th. This is the voice of the Republic of Canada and one of the voices of the global resistance movement. We're here every Sunday at this time. You can follow us, bbsradio.com slash here we stand. And for you folks listening in today, this, of course, is part two in our memorial service, really, and remembrance of our good friend and sister, Colia Lafayette Clark. And you can follow that previous show by going to that website, scrolling down and looking at the show from November 20th. I'm really honored today to have one of Kolya's daughters, Akko Anwanu, with me. She's going to be talking about her memories of Kolya, maybe some aspects of the work we don't know about, her recent work, and some of the lessons we can take from her life. I was uh, reminded when I was preparing for the show of this uh, saying among my Scots-Irish people that I was taught by my grandmother at a very young age, and it says, a selfish life dies with you, but a selfless life given to the people lives among them forever. And I was very much thinking of Collier when I saw that and remember that saying because it really runs through the life stream of all of us when we realize the meaning of life is not to live it for ourselves but to live on through the people by an example of a life that's fought for people from the very beginning and for me that's what Collier embodies. We're going to get into all of that today. We're going to have other people hopefully calling in uh, to talk about Collier. And two announcements before we get on. Of course, you can follow our regular work, our website, murderbydecree.com and republicofkanata.org. January 15th is our 8th anniversary of the founding of our sovereign republic in Canada. And also the first anniversary of the launching of the International Kamala Court case, indicting and prosecuting Big Pharma for medical genocide, especially the use of children in drug testing experiments. We're going to be talking about that next week and into 2023. And February 9th is the 25th anniversary of the really the starting of the whole campaign in Canada to expose genocide in the death camps called residential schools. February 9th, 1998, we held a big forum in downtown Vancouver. For the first time, hundreds of survivors of these death camps were in attendance, and a lot of them got up and spoke. It led directly to our first tribunal and really everything that came out of it. So we're going to be remembering those dates really across the world, but especially on the west coast of Canada with uh, teach-ins, training workshops, and direct action. So if you want to be part of that, please write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. Well, let's get on with it. Uh, Akko, it's wonderful to have you here with us today. It is so wonderful to be here. What a wonderful introduction, especially about my beautiful mother. Um, yeah. I'm a spiritualist, so I don't necessarily believe that we ever die. I think science kind of backs yeah. that up with with, the, with a lot of what they teach. And I just have to say that I feel she's probably sitting right here listening. So I hope I honor her today by talking about her work and just yeah. her life in general. My mother was an amazing woman. And I really like what you said about, you know, living the kind of life that kind of, as I'm taking your words, expands beyond the, your limited time in the physical mm-hmm. here on this earth. And Mama was definitely one of those people who came into the world. And she just seemed to know, even as a child, when she would tell her stories about just being a young child, even before Emmett Till, when she really felt called into service, she always knew that she was going to be doing something bigger for the world. 
So um, it starts off with her people, of course, because we all start off within our own cultures, within our own family. But Mama never stopped there. She expanded further because she understood she had to work with people, you know, across races, across genders, across all of it. And I just have to say that I'm just completely honored to be her daughter and to be here talking about her today. It's so great. You know, hearing your voice, it it reminds me so much of the joy I felt whenever Coley and I sat down and started talking because, you know, our our, uh, spirit was very similar, and um, we just hit it off right away. Um, I wanted to ask you if you could describe a little bit, because I know people are listening who don't understand a lot of that history. Uh, Who was Emmett Till? What happened to him, and how did that spark your mother's involvement? Emmett Till was a young man who actually went to visit the South. He went to visit, and he was coming out of Chicago. And on a visit, he was accused of whistling at a white woman, and that was in 1955. He was just a kid. He was only 14 years old. Um, He was taken um, because of an accusation, a lie. He was taken. He was beaten. Um, and he was killed. And his mother, who I met, I met her in 19, I want to say 1995, she talked about how important it was for her to have an open casket so people could see the absolute horror of a lynching, because that's essentially what happened to him. He was absolutely brutalized. There was no compassion whatsoever. And later on, it was found that nothing that had been said that he'd done. He had, none of it had happened. So this poor child was beaten to death. And we see this across time with so many black men, so many black boys and black people, and not just within the black community, obviously. We see it in Native American culture. We see it across the world. But his death, his mother's bravery with being able to have that open casket just really lit the world on fire in terms of looking at how racism affected, you know, black people in the South, in the country, um, and not just black people, but the country in general. It was a very evil, still is, you know, Mm -hmm. a very evil blanket of seemingly endless terror that we all live through. I don't care whether you're black, whether you're white, it doesn't matter. We're all living Mm -hmm. through that. And so Mama was called by that spirit, the spirit of Emmett Till, through a woman named Claudette Colvin, who would, would, um, well, those two went together. Claudette Colvin would be a young 15-year-old girl who would sit on a bus prior to Rosa Parks, but she would not get that, um, she would not be celebrated for it because not only was she too dark at that time, talk about intersectionality in terms of racism, colorism, um, ageism, all the things that mama went through too. She would not get any accolades for sitting down because she was not acceptable. And Rosa Parks was kind of pushed in that place, which isn't to put Rosa Parks down at all. She absolutely did wonderful stepping in to do her part within the movement. But Claudette Colvin was first. So Mama felt really, really empowered by that, and she said to herself, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go out and fight for my people, and I'm not going to be afraid to do it. So she ends up joining the movement at 18, 
actually younger than that, but certainly that's when we first began to see her make her move as a young revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And after that, like the rest is kind of recorded. She's in Birmingham, Alabama. She's pregnant with my brother, James Arthur Lafayette, when she first gets hit by water hoses ordered by Bull Connor, a very racist, um, they called him like a, he, he was an he was like a, a pub a, 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 I want to say safety commissioner, and mm-hmm. you know he was brutal. His whole thing was to suppress any kind of of um, anything that 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 didn't fit with the code of the South. If you were fighting back, you were going to be met with his dogs, his hoses. It didn't matter, and he was just a symbol of everything else that was going on around the country at that time, because it wasn't just in the South, but certainly in the South is where you see the most brutal aspects of uh, Jim Crow segregation and and racism and just absolute horrendous treatment of of black and brown people, particularly black people at that time. So that that was how Mama got called into service. And for someone so young, I can only imagine how terrified she was, but terror does not stop our movement, does it? We move forward because we have to. And that was one of the things my mother taught me and my brothers and eventually my sister. I'm I'm her blood daughter, but I have a sister named Devonya Havis who came in through adoption. And as far as my mother was concerned, she's her daughter, period. That's it. So I want to be clear that there were five of us. There was my brother, James Arthur Lafayette, my brother, Bernard Lafayette, the third, my brother, Shaka Lafayette. And then I came after Shaka, and then Devanya came oh, into the family when we were I was around 9 or 10. And so Mama was really dedicated to taking care of her sons and daughters. And the interesting thing about her life in terms of being in the movement, um, the movement for her was not just, I'm here and I'm supporting my people and I'm protesting and now I will come, you know, away from this and I'll get a house and, and I'll be rich. No, mama remained poor all of her life. And while she was going around protesting, she worked for the Jackson advocate, you know, writing wonderful, you know, articles about what was happening to blacks in, in the South. She continued to work with people who were marginalized no matter where they were. One of my fondest memories of her was working with the mentally ill population and uh, in Mississippi. She worked for a place called Hut. I want to say it's Hut's Beth Center. And during that time that she worked there, she was instrumental in getting the particular house she was in shut down because they were molesting and uh, raping young um intellectually delayed children, autistic children. And so Mama was, like, absolutely instrumental in making sure that that was shut down. So her work as a revolutionary was everywhere. It wasn't just like, I'm going to do this, and, and then, you know, I'll do that. It was wherever I see oppression, wherever I see injustice, I will step in. And throughout her life, her biggest concern was trying to find home, trying to find a place of stability. But as a revolution, a revolutionary or anyone who fights against injustice, there oftentimes is no home. You don't have time. You don't have yep. time to establish roots. You don't have time to, you know, build a, a big bank account. Your job is exactly what 
you've decided to do, which is to constantly stay on the battlefield. And she often said that to me and my brothers. You have to always remain on the battlefield because this won't end. Right. And, so her, you know, because uh, so, we're being I'm targeted. So sorry, go ahead. Are on the front. You, we are targeted when we're on the front line. I want you to kind of mention, too, I'm sure you will, but uh, the way she faced targeting and harassment by the state and by other people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mama was, in fact, when I was, uh, when I was a baby, Mama tells the story of being in Staten Island. I was born in Manhattan, but for the first six months of my life, I lived in Staten Island with her. My Aunt Louise had to come and get me because Mama, um, I believe it was the FBI. No, actually, I'm sorry, it was the CIA that came in and told her, like, 24 hours to get out of her apartment. She was constantly in danger. So she had to have my Aunt come and get me so that I could... You know, um, I think she went to stay with someone else during that time, but she had to have, have my aunt come and get me so I could be taken to my grandmother where I could be kept safe. And me and my brother Shaka spent a couple of years of our lives with my grandmother and grandfather, who were also, you know, um, even though they weren't on the battlefield in the same way as Mama, they were very supportive of Mama. She had a very supportive family, a very loving family. And while they didn't understand everything that she was doing, they still supported her and they would make sure that me and my brothers were okay and, you know, pretty much try to help mama as best they could as she tried to continue to deal with this constant attack by the U.S. government and by other people as well. You know, if you join the movement and you were in the movement for any considerable amount of time, you were in danger. So, um, and Mama never stopped being in danger. She never stopped feeling as if her life was about to end. She never knew when something that she did, when some protest um, would lead to her demise. But what I love about my mother is she was a warrior. She never stopped. Mm -hmm. Never. No. I want to ask about when, you know, the if you like, Martin Luther King and the TV camera showed up, the, the officially approved civil rights movement, and how it's seen now in the official histories. Tell me about the contrast between that and what your mom and others were doing on the ground. I think that my mother, my mother said that one of the things that they did, that they figured out as a young, a group of young revolutionaries, is that they could use the cameras to their advantage. So that was the whole purpose of nonviolence. Nonviolence wasn't because they were necessarily pacifists, as so many people think. Nonviolence was strategic. It was a right. way to get the world to see, like, listen, do you see what they're doing? Like, you know, now we see, see all of these things on camera, and people are almost desensitized to it, right? But then it was, yep. like, appalling. It was like, oh, my God, we don't want this associated with us. And so by them remaining nonviolent and em- em- employing, employing those principles, they were able to to bring a lot of things to a standstill, and that right. made them even more dangerous, right? So you end yep. up with, with King getting killed. Mama went through, you know, a couple of tragedies, because Megger, she was the secretary for Megger Evers, and right. um, it, he ends up getting killed. Yeah. And then Martin King ends up getting killed. So for Mama, she actually had a breakdown um, after Martin King's death, because it just hit her how insane it was that 
these people who she was protesting with, who, you know, they were fighting, organizing. They weren't just in the streets protesting. They were organizing. They were organizing people to vote. They were organizing people to, you know, go and protest. They were just doing whatever they could to try to get people to see them as human. They weren't trying to, to, to just get something like a, a slap on the back, a new job. They were trying to get people to see them as human, to stop killing oh. black men and black women, to stop oh. putting people in positions where they were, were constantly living in a state of terror. And that's what Mama and the young revolutionaries that she worked with did, and they never stopped. And for Mama, I remember in that it was so interesting. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Well, the excerpt that, yeah, hold that thought, because the excerpt from that interview I did with her on the show last week, she talked about the importance of having a base before you do anything, a base in the community Absolutely. before you do mobilizing and all that. And, you know, she was constantly going on about that, which is borne out all the time, right? Right. And Mama and them, people have to understand, too, there wasn't always a base. There were a lot of people who were against what they were doing within the community. So that meant that you had to find the people who were your allies, no matter who they were, no matter what their race was, and kind of position yourself so that you could be anchored on, on that energy. Because you never knew when you were, would be around someone who might be so frightened because that is oppression, right? You know, you, you have people who are like, I'm so scared. Let me run and tell what's happening. Even if, yeah. even if it would be to my benefit for these people to come in and make these changes, I am afraid, so I'm going to go run and tell what is happening. And so they had to constantly balance, you know, their own revolutionary actions against that, too, because all of that meant that they could end up getting killed just because somebody was too afraid to stand up and stand with them. So the mm-hmm. base meant finding people who they could actually, you know, stand with who were really standing on the same principles. And luckily, the beauty of that time period is that there were so many other, you know, other groups, other groups of people, other races who were, who were also standing up at the same time. It was like this wonderful collective energy oh, yeah. that allowed them to reach out to so many other groups. Yeah, and then methods and the tactics of the sit-in and that the civil rights movement fed the anti-war movement. And, you know, there's that whole Absolutely. beautiful time. And it, it's too bad it's turned into almost a stereotype now, and people don't understand, you know, the, the the substance and the spirit of what activated people. And, you know, that's why your mom's life is so important to be sharing with people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That I mean, there will never again. I don't know what will come. Maybe something better will come. And I'm not putting down any of the movements that have come, you know, subsequent to that. But I will say this, that there will never again be that kind of energy. Mama... Mama's contemporaries, you know, um, warriors like you, other other warriors. There, there. That energy is something different. You you look for it. You try to see if you can find it in other places, and sometimes you see it in the pockets. But there's something about that period that just it, it won't. I don't think it will ever come again. So when someone like Mama passes, it it feels like a light has gone out in the world in a much-needed light. So anything I can do to try to show people who Mama was, and not just Mama, but all of her contemporaries, then I will definitely do that. I, I made it a, a, my job to carry on yep. her work. Because yep. Mama, you know, I, I think one of the things is I, I, when I heard that she had passed, 
then I got, because I got a phone call. I was actually on my way to go see Mama, and I got a phone call that she had left the world. And I thought, wow, you know, this is the biggest thing that, that has ever happened in a long time, and it has nothing to do with me, nothing to do with my brothers. This is the, the, the end of something so powerful, someone so powerful, yeah. that there are no words to even describe what I felt in that moment. I, I, I mourned that you day. Know what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Go ahead, repeat. No, no, I, I mourned that day. It was a genuine kind of mourning I haven't felt for anyone in a long time, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I felt the same. I felt, I felt cracked. But then yeah. I remembered my mother. My mother was not a, a, a big... She was a true revolutionary. She was someone who felt like you can save your tears for after the revolution. When it's over, then we'll cry together. <laughs> that so, sounds exactly. <laughs> yeah, she was like, that's who she was. Like, yeah. so she just didn't. She was. She would not have cried. She would not have cried for herself. She would have tried to figure out what are the next steps to help this revolution continue. What are the next steps that I need to do to stop systemic racism or systemic oppression? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I stop, inter, you know, how do we put a, an end to intergenerational uh, trauma? And mm-hmm. she had started her life off, I just wanted to say that, like very centered on black men, very centered on black men and black men's lives and making sure that black men were safe. And even as a kid, she would tell me that, like, you know, the most important thing was making sure that black men were safe because we lived in a patriarchy. And so we kind of had this kind of, I, I don't know, we were comrades in, in taking care of my brothers and comrades in taking care of other other black men. I understood that as a young girl, but of course, as I got older, I began to say, well, Mama, what about women? And one of the things she would say to me is like, it's not that women don't matter, I'm not saying that, but right now men need to lead. And even if women, you know, need to, you know, take some, some tough knocks from men, men need to lead. But towards the end of her life, she was shifting and she was saying, you know, because I was, even though I ne- was never given an official name, I never had an official name on my birthday, I was still called after her, I was called Coley. And so she would say to me, she said, you know, you know, now that I've, I've had so much time to think and I've seen so much, there has to be a place where we begin to balance out how this revolutionary action looks. And women have to begin to take a bigger role. So I want people to know that Mama, like any human being, was evolving, and she was evolving past the place of even looking at race. She was reaching out, and she was always reaching out beyond those spaces, but she was beginning to really look at things from a much bigger perspective and understanding that we have to begin to make these connections in a way that's no longer surrounded around gender, but surrounded in a way that keeps everybody on the battlefield, but yet at the same time keeps us all unified as equals. Right. And that's, that's she never mentioned. She, uh, she never mentioned Malcolm X. Did she, did she have any kind of connection to black Muslims? No, or? no, not, not any big connections to Malcolm X. I think she said she, she almost met him once or twice, but she never had any serious connections to Malcolm X. Hmm. So she admired him. She admired him a big deal. But Mama was, you know, there was, there's Malcolm X and then there was Martin King and that was her camp. You know what I mean? So yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. she was definitely into, you know, the SNCC, SCLC. Those were, that, those were her camps. 
Yep. And she respected, you know, Malcolm X, and she respected the, the Black Power movement, which she did have some influence in, but that wasn't her her main camp. Yeah. After um, after King died, you said, you know, it, it really hurt her and affected her. Yeah. How did she yeah, come she back? What happened breakdown. in the 70s and the 80s and all that with her? Um, Mama came back because that was just Mama. Mama was never one to stay down. Um, when coming into the, the, she had a Shaka in 68, then she has me in 71. So Mm -hmm. mama was spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to balance taking care of her children. And this is the part that I really wanted to talk about. I met Mm -hmm. a woman named Ella J Baker when I was around five years old. I didn't know who she was. You know, I'm just a little girl. And she looks down at me and she says, Coley, oh, this is your baby. This is baby Coley. She's so cute. And for mm-hmm. Mama, Mama was telling me about how tragic it was that Ella J. Baker had, how she died. She was this woman that was a major voice in the civil rights movement. But yet, in the end, because she was a female in the movement, she died yeah. very poor. Not with, yep. without, I mean, people know her now, but there wasn't much mention. There wasn't much, like, fanfare. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, Ellis did. So that yeah. really hurt Mama. And it's interesting that Mama died in a very similar fashion. Mama died, you know, paying six ninety five for a room she rented from my brother, which she felt absolutely happy about because she felt she was paying most of the rent. But she died with that want and need to have her own home. That was a big yep. deal for her. And she was like, I want, my, I want a home. I want a place that I can call my own. But when you're a revolutionary and you're on the, on the field for, for all of your life, you don't have time to build that kind of a base. Because there's the base where you work with other revolutionaries, and then there's the base where you come home. And she never had that space. And a lot of women of the movement did not. Many of them we will probably never even hear about, right? Yep. So, but that didn't stop Mama from continuing her work that didn't stop her from wanting people to change, wanting to the world to be safer for her people and for the world's people. I remember walking with her one day cause mama used to work in shelters. I eventually would end up doing the same thing. It's so spooky, but a lot of my life has kind of mirrored mama's life, but we were walking and you know, a young man came up to us. He looked very weathered. You know, his, his hair was sparse. It was blonde hair. His hair was sparse. A couple of his teeth were missing, and he just grabbed Mama, and he said, I love you, Mama. I miss you. And it was one of the guys that she had worked with in the shelter. And they just sat talking like they were family friends, you know? And, and it was just a beautiful moment for me to see how Mama, it didn't matter everywhere we went, people from all walks of life, it could be people who were very elite to people who were extremely poor. Mama treated everybody the same because she never saw, and she taught us that too, she never saw people as different. She never said, this person is here and this person is there. All people were treated the same. Yep. And yet at the end, you know, I, I, I felt one of the things that will haunt me is that I felt that she did not really receive the accolades that she should have received at the end. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, the uh, your involvement, what are your first memories of being with her? Were you at protests and all this work you're talking about? Do you have some really oh, man. Mama, key memories? Mama had, us, Mama had us everywhere for a while, but then for me, a lot of my childhood was spent under Mama. 
because mama was, you know, I, my brothers were allowed to kind of roam free. I was a girl, and I was kind of a nuisance to mama in a way because I was also, I will always say that my brother Shaka was like, uh, you know, he was her foundation of family. He was very stable. I was her river. I was, okay, you're going to try to keep me in the room today. I'm going to climb out the window and I'm going to run in the neighborhood. So <laughs> mama always said that I was her wild child, and if anybody, if she had a revolutionary, it was me. I was always on the go. So she would have to grab me and take me with her. And I learned from her that way. I learned through watching her work at the Jackson Advocate, through watching her organize people to, to vote, through watching her, you know, teach. I learned everything. I was obsessed with my mother. I have to say that. I was obsessed with her beauty. I remember when her and her friend, uh, Dorothy Smith, I was at this time maybe two or three, and I have a very long memory. I have pockets of memory that I think I don't remember, but I just remember watching them walk and thinking how beautiful they were. I thought they were angels, and they were both mm -hmm. revolutionaries. They were both doing this revolutionary action in the world, you know, um, just really powerful women. And so I, I was constantly watching that and learning from her, and trying to fit myself into her shoes. And um, I just, I adored her. So she was doing everything, everything from protesting to, like I said, you know, um, changing. Work environments were a big deal for her. So if she saw workers being mistreated, then Mama was going to make sure that she was there to change the treatment of, you know, whatever company she worked for. But a lot of times that she ran into problems with, you know, the authority on jobs. She didn't care. If you're doing something wrong, I'm going to stand up, and I'm going to be the one to help shift and bring about the changes. So mm -hmm. that was my life with Mama. I, I don't think I remember ever seeing her relax. You know, you hear all these things about self-care and taking time for yourself. No. Mama didn't yeah. take time for herself. <laughs> self-care for Mama was being out and organizing protests. <laughs> right. So, exactly. you know, she was, she was that kind of woman. And that's what right. I saw constantly and all the time. In fact, one of my biggest memories of Mama, and I, I guess this one's kind of a little disturbing for me when I look back on it, Mama was always kind of at war with people who were trying to har harm other people. So I remember being a little girl, and we shared the same room, and I would just very quietly watch her in the middle of the night, and she used to smoke Marlboro Red cigarettes because at that time it was there was – there weren't there weren't a lot of there wasn't a lot of fuss about whether or not you smoked. So she would I would see the trail of her cigarette going back and forth and and she would blow these smoke rings and then she would have a war with someone. Whoever it was at that time that she would have to face either the next day or in weeks to come. And I would wonder who would win. And I would watch sometimes until the the light of the new day would be coming. And Mama would continue that war throughout the night. And I think that that's where she was. She was always trying to make sure that she was ready for whatever battle was going to come next. And so that was that is my biggest memory of my mother is always being someone who just wasn't going to leave the battlefield. It just wasn't what she was, she was born to do. She reminds me a lot of clan mothers I've come to know in Kanata. Uh, like there's just this, the, you know, the the clan mother is at the center of, of the society traditionally, and, and Coley sure was. I mean, she was just, it's hard to put her into words in a way, you know. 
Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it really is. Mama, I have a book that I'm going to be, that will be out in May. It's called The Book of Coley, and it's stories about her life that she told me. And Great. I, I, and I, I could go on. It's really, it could be volumes of it, of the things that, <laughs> that Mama went through. Um, well, like I want to I ask said, you about, in recent years, ahead. I know that she had a history, too. She ran for the Green Party. She ran for Senate and all that. Uh, you know, so talk about her later life and her involvements and how she changed or didn't change, but how things developed for her as she got older. As she got older, I think she began to have, like, political aspirations. And she's like, okay. I remember when she said it, we both had a laugh. I was like, uh, you're running for the Green Party? And she's like, yeah, running for the Green Party. And so mm-hmm. we both, because she hadn't really talked about any of that before. So I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, okay, this is different. And it just became one more reason to be proud of her. And right. she, before that, she had helped to, she was determined to help organize for Cynthia McKinney. She just loved Cynthia McKinney. And, yep. you know, anybody who knows Cynthia McKinney knows how powerful she was. And so Mama was like, hey, I want to do this too, because she really admired the Green Party. And mm-hmm. she wanted to be separate from Democrats, from Republicans. She felt that the Green Party was offering black people a different platform. And so mm-hmm. she decided to to run. And I just, I absolutely was fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. And I still am because she had no idea what she was going to do to even begin the process of running for the Green Party. But she did it. And that was just mama. Oh. That's how powerful she was. And after oh, yeah. that, it was just her organizing whatever she could organize. Her joining yeah. whatever she could join. And, you know, she traveled all over the world. One of her biggest, um, one of the biggest people that she talked about who she got a chance to meet when she traveled was uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. And right after that, you know, she was in shock when she heard, you know, that he had been killed. Mm-hmm. So Mama was, you know, like I like I said, she was everywhere, and yeah. she didn't stop. Nothing stopped her. She continued to, you know, work on behalf of the things that she believed in. As yeah. she was changing, if you want to talk about her evolution again, it goes back to her looking at, you know, the things that she had not necessarily focused on before. It's not that she didn't work with women. Of course, she cared about women's rights, but she was beginning to focus a bit more on that, especially grandmother's rights and mother's rights. She began to focus on, and I think we touched on this. I'm not going to touch on it much now, but to focus on children conceived in rape. Um, We talked about doing some work around that. She talked about, you know, um, dealing with uh, people who, who were being discriminated against because of their sexuality. It didn't matter. Mama was determined to leave this world when she left it, because she said she wasn't going to leave until she was 100, I guess, she decided to leave a little early, <laughs> but she was absolutely determined to continue to stand up for anyone who needed to be supported um, as a marginalized person in the world. That was just the yeah. person that she was. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the reasons I asked about the Green Party and her, her political campaigns were um, applying 
her example to now on the political situation, not only in the world, but in America, uh, your thoughts about any of that and, you know, what's going on these days, right? I would say this. I would say if we were applying Mama's views, Mama's views were that the world needed to change radically. Not that the world mm-hmm. needed to make little small changes or, you know, a lot of times people are, and I'm not putting anyone down, you know, a lot of times people just feel like I'll work within the system. Mama felt that the system needed to be overthrown, yep. that that was the only way that it would ever bring it about does. the changes needed to keep people, you know, um, safe. And that was a big yep. deal for her was the safety of people. You were talking about one of the things when I looked at the interview between you and Mama, you were talking about the Native American, I mean, the people I guess it would be Native Canadians or Canadian Indians and what they went through. You know, Mama was yep. talking about that for years. Yep. You know, so for me, if we were talking about Mama's political agenda, it would be for especially black people to begin to stand up and take more radical steps to correct their condition in the world. So that was where she, where she was at the end of her life. Um, you know, this, you see in America, historically, a lot of populist movements coming along. You know, being half American, half Canadian, I see on both sides, Canadians have this kind of bland approach to politics, but there's always such passion in Americans about you know, their politics. And you see this whole part of the white population that's being co-opted by Trumpism and by, you know, this kind of right-wing fanaticism that says, well, we can be great again. And she, I remember Coley in one of her interviews said, no, we'll never go back. America's never going to be the way it was in the 60s. It's a big illusion. So how do we break... How do we break all these people out of that captivity to these billionaire oligarchs who are just leading people down a blind path, right? You keep doing what Mama was doing. You keep trotting through. Mm-hmm. It does, it's not something that's going to happen. I think we all want it. To, we just have this this idea that, you know, please, like, we can change it. If we can just reach people's minds, if we can just get people to think. But you just have to keep going. And that's what Mama always told us. That's what she said. That was always never leave the battlefield. Never leave the battlefield until the war is over. So what we're looking at is, is a war. It's a war. It's a war against marginalized people. It's also a war, ironically, against people who aren't marginalized that they can't see. And so there has to be those of us on the ground who say, listen, we're going to keep talking about these issues. We're going to keep protesting, organizing to stop these issues until the moment comes when the war is over. And that's what I don't think very many people understand. That's right, they don't. And, you know, they're looking for the short-term piecemeal solutions because it's safer. But, um, you know, I, m- I remember uh, uh, an old guy I knew he had been through the Korean War, and he said when all their new recruits got to the front line, they're always keeping their heads down so they don't get shot. But then when one of their friends got killed, they realized they had to fight. And they forgot yeah. about themselves and thought of the bigger thing, and, and although I don't like that analogy too much, the point is that's true. People want to initially protect themselves, but then they realize they forget about themselves and say, look at the purpose, look at our higher, you know, mission here, and think of the people who are going to die if we don't take action, right? 
Absolutely. And that was mama's, that was mama's policy. Like, I mean, yeah. think about it. Think about how young they were when they entered the movement. You know, they were so oh, yeah. young. They had no idea. They had never stood up against white people ever. Yeah. But they had to raise those heads and run into, run into this horrible war and stay there. They weren't even allowed to leave the battlefield. Not really. Some may have gone on and they may have, say, gotten a little bit comfortable. But Mama, most of them did not. Most of them were still struggling with raising children, struggling with, you know, money. It didn't matter. They were always under, they always understood that this is what I signed up for. Yep. And I almost oh, yeah. believe that coming into the world, when we come into the world, when we decide to, because just my own spiritual beliefs, but when we come into the world and we decide to be here, we're all signing up for that because we are all charged to make sure that the world is a safe place for us all. So there's mm-hmm. no way. I find it hard, you know, and maybe it's just, just because I was raised under my mother, I find it hard to understand people who don't want to stand up for change. Yeah, I know. That's difficult for me to understand. You know, especially when it, 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 I'm so sorry. Go especially ahead. when people, when they have options in their life, they can take it or leave it. But when your life depends on this, when your life de- mm-hmm. requires that you're back, and then you still don't, you know, that's what I don't get. When people just go along with the with with the death, <laughs> right? Yeah, but I think most people think that they that they have options. We don't have options. If one of us is hurting, if Kevin is hurting and I sit and I watch Kevin hurt and I think that it's not going to happen to me, I'm yep. absolutely wrong. You hurting yeah. is hurting me. And in yep. order for me to be able to live comfortably as a human being, then I have to stand up to make sure you're not hurting. And I think that yep. that's what we don't get as a world. We get caught up in the idea that somehow or another we're separate from one another. We're not. And that's, that is what Mama taught me, me, my brothers and sisters. Well, you know, and you live in a narcissistic culture where everyone's taught to just, you know, live for themselves. And it's it, mm-hmm. people like Coley and you and all of us, we're the antidote to that. We can show people that, you know, that's not life to live like that, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and that, that's what, what I loved about having her as a mother. Towards the end of her life, as she began to talk to me, she began to tell me to focus on, you know, raising my daughter, making sure that, you know, she was being prepared for the world in the right way. And she also began to look at, you know, again, going back to this, how women were treated, and you know, even within my own family, because, you know, she would tell me, oh, you know, these people were saying this about you or that about you, and I want you to make sure that you stay away from them. And I would ask her, well, why are they doing this? And she was saying, that is the way of the world. The world mm-hmm. is, no matter where you are, the world will always look at those of us who are willing to stand up for anything, and we make people afraid. We make people want to isolate yeah. us, to cause us to be quiet. And I know you know this. You know what I mean? They want you to be quiet because you make them absolutely terrified that something bad is going to happen to them. Right. And so I have learned with time that you can't live with that fear. You have to, as Mama said, walk with the gate of a warrior. You have to continue to stand by your principles and your values, live in truth. And you have to be willing to say, I am not leaving the battlefield until the war is over. Yeah. Beautiful. 
Yeah. What's, uh, you mentioned some of the other people might be calling in. Do you think, has anyone said they're going to, or maybe I'll check uh, with they said Donna, they were are there going any calls? To, I don't know if anybody is. You know, everybody, it, it was kind of spur of the moment, so I don't know if every, anybody oh, yeah. else will be able to call in. Um, but certainly right. if they don't call in, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I, they will reach out to you and call in later. So sure. but I, I certainly about... have enjoyed every second. So anything oh, yeah. else you want to hear from me? <laughs> I'm perfectly well, you know, happy I'd like to, to stay longer. This is yeah, we got about fifteen minutes, so we can go right to the end of the hour. But I mean, this is an ongoing, you know, dialogue and, and action, right? And um, right, it's it'd be great if you and other folks would like to come back on in the future. Feel free; it's an open forum for, oh, for absolutely. all of us. Absolutely, right. absolutely. Like I said, I will be carrying on different aspects of Mama's work. We are. I definitely am not a revolutionary in the sense of what she was. Nobody ever will be. Like I said, that was probably the most dynamic era of a revolution ever. That generation was just phenomenal. I don't think we will see that again, but we certainly all, we all have our voice, our contribution that we came to contribute to the world. And I plan on taking her work and making sure that nobody ever forgets her and forgets the work that she was doing. She didn't really care well, you know, so much I, I, about herself. She cared about think whether or not her life could be used to yeah. do good for others. These things move in cycles, I find, right? And the cycle may be long, mm-hmm. but it comes back, you know, the the example. And and um, especially nowadays, uh, when things are so much on the line everywhere, people are going to have yeah. to look at this stuff, right? Yeah, well, that's that's just the way where where excuse me, let me slow down a little bit. That's where we are in the world right now. That's just how yeah. the world is as the world is shifting, as we're seeing old paradigms be, you know, thrown, overthrown, and new paradigms put in place. Um, and we just have to to from where we are, no matter what we have at our disposal, we have to decide what we're going to contribute and then contribute that. For me, a big part of that is my writing. That is what Mama wanted me to focus on, as a matter of fact. Um, and like I said, we talked about uh, working on some stuff around rape, conce- rape conception while she was alive. Um, I plan on doing some of that work. I also plan on just, just continuing her work in general, telling her stories. Um, and just talking about her overall as a person, because she was truly a dynamic person. Please keep us informed if you're going to be doing any public events in New York or anywhere. We've got a big network, and and we can let people know about, you know, if you're doing readings anywhere or any any of the kind of work that, you know, that you're talking about, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I plan on letting you guys know step-by-step everything that I will be doing. Like I said, her book, that um, the uh, the Book of Coley, will be out in May. So okay, look great. for that. And then I will be doing some other work for her throughout the year as well. So okay, 2023 well, we'll def- is going to be my, my mama year. Well, that's great, Echo. Uh, we're going to have you know, on to talk about that again, especially when your book comes out. we got a caller named Lynn on line three. Go ahead, Lynn. Uh, yes, this is Lynn Mystic Healer. Um, yeah, I lived on the uh, Salish Kootenai Reservation. My background is um, Iroquois and um, Creek Indian. 
and um, German and uh, oh, um, English. And anyway, yeah, I'm here. I've um, I have a BBS radio talk show, and um, when I was a registered nurse in Canada, they called me a Raven Woman. I was a registered nurse in Oregon and in Canada, and I'm here to develop new healthcare, no more warfare systems. I've actually had my um, Magic Mary helped me get to the Indian Res in Montana. Anyway, uh, the Jeanette Reagan Peace Center dot org they they can help. Uh, my Army Captain brother and I help um, start uh, after two tours in Vietnam, and my Marine brother did two combat tours in Vietnam. Anyway, um, my background is mil- to shift us off militarism for sure, and I was given all kinds of information. I've had my own BBS radio. Um, talk show um, since 2008, so um, it's under spiritual emergency training for the archives Beautiful. there. And, um, yeah, so I've been wanting to get in touch with you for a long time. I, I think I did a long time ago because um, I got kicked out of church, churches too for getting kids connected to Source and the angelic realm. And yeah, and uh, yeah. Anyway, I've got books, and uh, anyway, I've almost been killed a bunch. I'm an activist and. We started, like I said, the veteransforpeace.org, and I uh, was in codepink.org to help. Anyway, love you guys, and thank you for being here. And, yeah, I've got lots of information I channeled to share with you guys, books and all kinds of info. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lynn. We love you, thank too. You. And write to us, um, angelfire101 at protonmail.com, if you want to drop me a line. Thank you, Lynn. It, maybe. My emails, I don't, I'm offline a lot. I don't, I don't know, hon. But thanks. You have to call. I can't. I don't. I don't think so. I can't. So it's weird. Maybe somebody else can drop me a line on your behalf. But we'll talk. Thank you, Lynn, for calling. Yes. Um. So sorry, Don. Did you say something? Okay. No call. No. Okay. Um. Any final words? Any uh, anything you want to share with us, Echo, that you you think's important? I just wanted to say that I just want people to remember that Mama was um, truly somebody that needs to be remembered. Her work needs to be remembered. In fact, she wouldn't even want anyone to remember her. She would want people to remember her work. Um, Mm -hmm. And just to remember that we almost walk um, with the understanding that we share a world. That's what Mama always taught me and my siblings. We share a world. We must greet everybody in this world as if they are equal to us, and we must do whatever we can to make the world a better place for those who are here and those who are coming. And those who are coming were very important to her. The future was a major part of everything that she did because she understood that as the world changes and as the world gets better, you know, uh, a new group of people come in, bringing a new group of a new kind of energy that helps us all to become um, better people and helps the world to become, you know, a much more livable place. Right. So that's what I would say I want people yeah. to take away when they remember Colia, you know, Colia Clark. She was just an amazing person. And it, again, it's all, it, I'm going to feel empty, I think, for the rest of my life, knowing that she's not physically in the world anymore. Echo, I really want to thank you for coming on. It's been beautiful. And I know we'll talk to you again especially if you've got more stuff to share about your book and all your other work. Thank you so much, sister. Absolutely. Thank you. And I'm just totally honored to be on your show, and I will be back whenever you want me to come. And whenever you like. It's 
it's uh, yeah, drone operation here. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye for now. That was Echo Anwanu. She's uh, talking to us from New York, sister in the struggle, daughter of Colia Lafayette Clark. And uh, in the few minutes left, I want to, uh, I was getting some emails as we were talking, and um, one of them said to remind me to mention something I forgot last time, and that was as part of the International Criminal Court of Justice that I mentioned, the first anniversary of its most recent case on January 15th, one of the things that it was doing on the West Coast was documenting the atrocities happening today. And genocide, of course, is ongoing for the reasons we've been talking about for the last hour. And to stay on the battlefield is to be there where the crimes are happening. And the most recent common law court case that brought in the indictment against Big Pharma and this usual gang of criminals, the Crown of England, the Pope, all these people, hard evidence now about how not only were the Catholic and Anglican churches authorizing the use of children, not just native children, but lots of other children, uh, and from their orphanages, their hospitals, the churches. This goes back decades. They were used in medical genocide. They were drug-testing children who died from it. Medical genocide by Pfizer, the very company now pumping drugs into your children's arms, murdered children en masse. Now, on the basis of that, they were convicted back in January 15th of this year. Under international law, they're transnational criminal organizations, like the Catholic Church, like the Crown of England, Anglican United Churches. And people have the lawful right to seize their property and assets. That's the law. They can't use their money because it will kill people. It's for criminal purposes. So recently, as part of that ongoing investigation, and I mentioned um, back in September 20th, the present so-called King of England, Charles, was implicated in these crimes, the disappearance of children at the Kamloops School that people know a lot about now because my friend William Coombs died bringing out that truth when Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip abducted children from those schools that were never seen again. The hard evidence that Charles had knowledge of that and was involved in those crimes. They're ongoing because, as we know, the front line of this battle in Canada is right on the West Coast, British Columbia, the hands of the Chinese, who are buying up a lot of the resources, but in so doing, targeting for extermination, and I use that word not lightly, but literally, wiping out whole areas of the province of indigenous people as we speak all cloaked behind a lot of fog, and, you know, the existing Native Bank councils exist to create that fog so we don't see what's happening to people on the ground. But I'm in contact fairly regularly with people who are seeing these crimes, who are having their family members disappear because they speak out. It's happening as we speak. And for any of you on the West Coast listening in, we need you to turn your concern into action there will be actions to expose and confront these criminals. We have the legal right and obligation to shut down these churches, these corporations, these governments doing these crimes. But on the basis of those writs that a common law court issued from the case in January, the people have gone in and seized the COVID drug in places all over the world using our writs. It's one of the reasons our Republic Alliance has grown up all over the world, but it now exists in 12 countries. We have regular calls between people people building up their Kamala republics. These were people who took our writs and took action to stop these murderous drugs based on medical genocide. We're going to be taking actions in the new year 
all over the world, really, on this, on the first anniversary of this court case and of the founding of the Republic, which gives us the sovereign authority and right to do that. But to give you an example, uh, back in 2008, Chief Capilano, the traditional Squamish elder of the whole area in Vancouver that is his traditional territory, he gave me legal right of entry into these churches. It's one of the reasons we held these church actions and occupations. And we were never stopped by the police, because Capilano had filed an order in the Supreme Court authorizing me as his legal agent to have right of entry to seize these churches as genocidal bodies. They didn't have the right to operate. All of us now have the power and the right to enter these churches and shut them down, because children are still being trafficked through them. They're still being used as front for these murderous operations. The Vatican signed a deal to fund the Chinese takeover economically of North America, over a trillion dollars in Vatican funds. It's one of the reasons the so-called Pope came to Canada to do that. So these are crimes of genocide happening as we speak. It's not in the past, and it'll be happening in the future unless we stop it. I don't think it's a naive statement to say that we can stop it, because we've shown in the past that we can. It just takes people like Claudia Clark, who never left the battlefield, any more than I'm ever going to leave the battlefield till I stop breathing. And even beyond that, I won't, as Claudia is still fighting. So I want you to remember that now. This is a life-and-death issue as we speak. West Coast is one of the front lines of that. We will be giving you the means to fight back. And if you're not there in these actions and you're not helping us in some way, you only have yourself to blame when it comes to knock, knocking on your door. It's been a law in Canada since 1874 that if you refuse medical treatment and you live on an Indian reservation, you go to jail. So why are we getting upset now when it's happening to us? How can you object about something happening to you now when it's been happening to your neighbor for over 150 years? The vaccine passport, all of that stuff was pioneered against Native people. An injury to one is an injury to all, as Akko was saying today. So we take that to heart, we take action. I want to see you all out there when the actions begin in January to write, to get involved, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. Read the hard evidence of this genocide at MurderByDecree.com and Republic of Kanata. K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofcanada.org, to sign up, switch your allegiance and citizenship to the new republic, which is built on the ground in the grassroots in the manner of our sister, Collier Clark, who taught a lot of us how to do it. This is Kevin Anna at Eagle Strong Voice. It's been a joy having the show today with ACO. We're going to be back again live next week. Until then, take us all to heart. Let it mobilize you feet on the ground to take action to defend the least of our people for the future, for all of our futures. Until then, stay strong, stay clear. I thank you.